morning. Father God, we thank you, uh, Lord. Lord, already this morning we've heard the gospel through the sung words of the songs this morning. Our hearts have been encouraged and made alive this morning in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, we realize that, and yet we, we still see within ourselves ways and areas in which we can grow. So we pray this morning, God, that you would help us. Help us in that. Well, let us see the worth of the cross. Let us see the worth of Jesus dying in our place. And let us figure out how to walk this out in all of our lives, in all aspects uh, of our livelihood as men and women of the word, as men and women of God this morning. Lord, we need you. I pray you open blinded eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 this morning, uh, I need to let you know something about me, and that is that growing up, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of TV uh, in my house. Now, uh, you could take my story uh, and my entertainment as, as a child growing up uh, and run the clock back 20 years and it would still fit, because growing up, we only had three channels. Um, we lived in a holler, as you all know, uh, which is uh, just a fancy way to say we lived in between two hills. We lived in the, we lived in the bottom of it, so there was a creek that ran through my front yard. Uh, I say all of that to set the story up to say that our TV was set by antenna. Uh, not the bunny ears on the top, but we got those later in life as a teenager. But next to our house, we had a pole that would run 30 feet into the air. And on top was this spaceship-looking thing. Things coming out. You guys, some of you older folk know I'm talking about. Young children like, what is he talking about? You all know what you do in the, in the winter, winter months. The clouds come in. You know what you do? The TV's a little fuzzy. You go out there in the cold. Put your hands on that thing, and you turn it. You got to get better reception in here. So I had three channels growing up. We had a, uh, ABC, CBS, and PBS. Uh, all three of those channels still in existence today. Uh, but the, the channel that we watched the most, because growing up, we weren't allowed to watch the news. Um, we just, as children, uh, just wasn't allowed. So we, uh, we spent most of our days, and when we were watching TV, watching PBS. Some really good stuff on there. A lot of trash on there, but there's a lot of good stuff on there. One of my favorite shows watching that, uh, to much my wife can't stand that I actually like this show, yet don't actually like it, but uh, I love the show, Antique Roadshow. Anybody ever watch Antique Roadshow? Got some of you in here? My wife can't stand it because uh, uh, she, I actually hate antiquing. She loves it. She loves it. Like, let's go antiquing. I'm like, I would rather poke my own eyeballs out than go sift through another man's junk. Um, and yet, uh, growing up, we would watch the Antique Roadshow. And so this week, thinking about uh, the text this morning in front of us in Mark 14, um, begin to think on this show, Antique Roadshow, and I, said, uh, I thought to myself, what's the most valuable thing that those guys have ever priced, right? So, okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Antique Roadshow, what it is, uh, they would have these uh, giant conventions where you could bring what you thought was valuable, what you thought was valuable, uh, and you could say, uh, and actually have the people who are in the know uh, critique it. And they would like try to get you to try to tell your big, you know, your long history of, oh, this is so important to my family. And they would look at you and say, it's, it's a piece of junk. It's not worth anything. Or you'd be like, I don't know. Like, can you just tell me what this is worth? And so I was like, thinking to myself, what is the most valuable thing that show has ever priced? So I did some Google searching this, uh, this week. And uh, this is no longer the... the, the top-valued thing that they've priced on this show. But back in 2001, an older gentleman came on this show with looked to me like a, a rug. And they had it strung up there, uh, just black and white and some blue indigo in there. And uh, turns out that this thing is a, uh, a Navajo blanket. Navajo blanket, 
uh, Indian blanket that uh, and they called it the first phase Navajo blanket. And then they go on to explain, as they do in this show, explaining um, that the Navajo Indians actually went through three phases of blanket making. And this was the first phase, therefore already elevates its importance and its worth and its value. But not only that, but this, this particular blanket, uh, they could tell because it had dyed indigo in it, was a, a chief's blanket. Chief Navajo blanket. And uh, the, the appraiser was standing there looking at this older gentleman who had brought it in, and he said, you, you've probably seen me. Uh, when I first walked up and was looking at this, I kind of became breathless. He said, did you know? He said, yeah. And the guy's like, I'm still kind of breathless just looking at this. And again, this looks like a rug. Um, this looks like I hate antiquing, but I love this show. Because he says, on, he says, do you have any idea how much this is valued at? And I was like, I really have no idea. It's just been like sitting on the back of a chair in my house. He said, on a bad day, this Navajo blanket, the chief's blanket, is worth $250,000. He said, but on a good day, on a good day, this blanket's worth $500,000. In 2001, that was the top-setting uh, valuation. The appraiser goes on to tell this older gentleman uh, that this is the most uh, uh, valuable thing they've ever appraised on the show. And so this then led to a movement of old folks, actually, who've seen the show, digging through their blanket drawers to figure out, do we got any Navajo chief blankets up in here? Um, an older man uh, found one in 2015 uh, in his house, sold it for $1.5 million. It's fantastic. Fantastic, because this older gentleman had it sitting on the back of his chair. His grandmother had gotten the blanket uh, when she went and when uh, his grandmother's father went into foster care. He was given the blanket uh, and then passed down now two, two or three generations. And this older gentleman who's in his 60s brings it in and finds out he's got hidden treasure. He was shocked. The appraiser said, up to $500,000. Man, just starts crying. That's, what, that's one of the reasons I love the show. Uh, number one, well, not in my nose, but... You get people who think that they got real valuable stuff in here, and they come in, and they're like, that's worth like 12 bucks, bro. It's like, you need to take it to the pawn show. This is the wrong show for this. Take it to the pawn show. Uh, this is the antique road show. Uh, but then to actually see people who actually have valuable things of interest, uh, just fascinating show. Anyway, let's go to the text this morning, Mark 14, because here we have uh, Jesus giving us viewpoints, or Mark giving us viewpoints of what is Jesus worth. How much is it worth? That's the title of my, text, of my sermon this morning. Let's look at the text, Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went to the chief priests in order to betray to him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So understand the context of our passage this morning. This is uh, Jesus and, and crew have exited the temple where they have been teaching all week long about the coming things of God, the coming, uh, the, 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 Jesus is going to come and, and change everything up. And then in verse 13, we have Jesus teaching about the end of the world, uh, the end of the Jewish age, and how all things will begin to be made new. Here's the beginning of 14. This is interesting uh, because Mark now shifts this context. And you know that this is, uh, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. But what's interesting here in verse 1 is that what's completely unexpected. You see, the Passover was a time of remembering what God had done. You see that in the text. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Mark is setting the context so that you and I and the readers throughout the church history can be on the same page and understand that this Passover was a time of remembering what God had done, the work he had provided. You see, he had freed the slaves from Egypt. They had not freed themselves. He had freed them. And the people who should have been most excited about this heralding of the Passover, this celebration of the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes had other things on their mind. You see, it was their job to offer the sacrifice. It was their job to teach the law, to remind the children of Israel what the Passover was really about. You see, it was the chief priest alone who could enter the temple, the most holy place, once a year to make atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. In the sacrificial offering of the lamb each Passover, the people were to be reminded of God's goodness. Them. And so given the timing, you have the Passover being near and the people, the priests and the scribes, it makes what is coming so outrageous that we almost miss it. You see, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. This should not be. Here we have the breaking of at least two of the Ten Commandments. You see, we have the law of theft being broken here, the Ninth Commandment. And then we have murder, which is the sixth commandment being broken. For they wanted to take him by stealth so that they would not be seen. Now, the scriptures tell us it's the thief who enters by night. So he's not seen. And here the chief priests and the scribes wanted to take him by stealth under the cover of darkness. You could say, in a sense, that they wanted to steal Jesus. And the reason why they wanted to steal Jesus, the motive behind it, is the fact that they want to murder him. You see this, right? Life is sacred to the Lord. Is the Lord who put his mark on Cain, the first murderer, so that Cain himself would not become slaughtered as he slaughtered Abel. Life is precious to the Lord, so much so that the reason he gave the sixth commandment, that men would not murder one another, the reason he gave that to them is because life is important to the Lord and precious to the Lord. And this works itself out, right? You have Jesus in uh, the New Testament telling us that that not only should we not actually physically kill someone, but that we shouldn't kill them in our hearts, right? We shouldn't even hate them. And that was always the intent of the law. We were not to murder, yes, but the, that should be the outworking of a rightly positioned heart in God's kingdom, in, in God's world. And yet, even though life is precious to the Lord, here are the men who stand on behalf of the Lord who should have been preparing and heralding the good news of the Lord in the service and remembrance of the Passover, trying 
to find an opportunity to kill him. This is the opposite of what they should have been doing. And then we have this story of the beautiful woman, of this woman who, who pours the anointing oil on Jesus. You say, well, what, what is it, how, how do these relate? Is Mark simply transitioning from, uh, you got dudes wanting to find him and kill him to, you have the story of oil, how do these relate? We know that they go together because look at how the text ends in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, what Judas is trying to do, I'm getting somewhere, these two stories relate, right? All the pieces, right? This is the Mark sandwich, which we know and love dearly in the gospel according to Mark. Because in the beginning of the story, you have a group of men and women seeking an opportunity to kill him. At the end of the story, you have one man seeking an opportunity to betray him. But in the middle of this story, we have the story of the woman who is anointing Jesus. This beautiful story. Uh, she comes in and, and seems in excess and lavishness, extravagance, seems to worship her king, to worship Jesus. Now this morning, this story tells us a story of radical worship, which is contrasted with radical negligence. Radical negligence on the part of the chief priests and scribes and Judas Contrasted with the story of radical worship of the woman who loves her Savior. But I have a question for us this morning, which is, what is worship? Have you ever stopped to think? What is worship? We hear all the time, we have a worship service. We should worship the Lord. We should do acts of worship. What is it? You see, oftentimes what happens in uh, church world is uh, a word becomes so broad that we actually then lose all concept of the word. Right? So think about like the, the, the understanding worship. We, we hear statements such as, well, all of life, pastor, is worship. That's true. It should be, but what does it mean? How do we walk it out? Flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Because what I want to do for us this morning is to ground us in uh, understanding what worship actually is. Through what this woman is doing so that we may be better equipped to truly worship the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, if you're there with me, say amen. If you need more time, say hold up. We all there? Galatians chapter 5, look at this with me, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, what Paul has given us here is actually how to walk out our worship. 
What Paul is giving us there in Galatians chapter 5 is how do we walk out our worship? How do we actually do this? And he says you do it by doing all these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, such things there are no law. Uh, there is no law. In other words, what Paul is saying is we worship by obeying and believing the scriptures. We worship when we obey and believe the scriptures. Let's go back to our text here in Mark. How do we walk this out? How, does, how do we see this woman worshiping then? Well, number one, I got five points, and then I'll sit down. Five points. Point number one, worship has... Oh, by the way, I told my wife yesterday, I said, I got like 13 points for these folks. She just kind of gave me a look. I said, you get five. You get five points this morning. Point number one, worship happens in public, and especially within the context of community. See what I did? I actually just shoved two points together and called it one. Worship happens in public and especially in the context of community. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon uh, the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask, an ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Look at this woman worshiping Jesus in public. Worshiping Jesus in public. Here it is. This woman breaks the flask, pours it out on Jesus' head for all to see. Listen, worship happens in public. Now I wonder, does that cause you angst? You're like, oh, is that true, Pastor? Because I think we've, in our modern lives, separated uh, understanding worship holistically. We say, no, 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 Pastor, worship happens in private. Didn't Jesus say? Didn't Jesus say, oh, you shouldn't do these things before men? He did say that. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 6. Flip there with me. I know, I got you running all over the place. Matthew chapter 6. You all either got cell phones or you ain't obeying your pastor here. Oh, there it is. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, look at what it says here. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. In the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. A lot of folks look at this text here in Matthew and they say, See, Pastor, worship doesn't happen in public. We never do our good works in front of people, only in the private aspects. Keep reading. Verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly. I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And then he goes on to give them the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, look at verse 14. Uh, it's talking about forgiveness. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, but they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, and your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We look at this passage here, 
Lots of Christians do it. It's okay. Lots of Christians look at this passage and say, you see, pastor worship does not happen in public. It happens in private. Jesus says, pray in private. He says, fast in private. He says, give your money to the poor in private. But my question for you this morning, is that what he said? Is that truly what the text says? Look at it again. Look at verse 2. Thus, sorry, not verse 2, but uh, yeah. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Look at that next phrase there. That they may be praised by others. See, these three examples, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, all of them, each one of them, each of these sections say something along the lines of the hypocrites do this so that they'll be seen by others. They give to the needy so that they may be praised by others, verse 2. They pray in public that they may be seen by others, verse 5. They fast in public and disfigure their faces uh, so that they may be seen by others, verse 16. You see, Jesus is not saying don't give to the needy, don't pray and don't fast. He's not saying that. He's not even saying don't do it in public. What he is saying is don't let the motives of your heart and worship be so that you can be seen by others. He isn't saying don't let other people know you are doing this, right? This is why, you know, classic fasting question is if I'm fasting, praying in secret to the Lord, and I go to a dinner party, what do I do, Pastor? I don't want them to know I'm fasting. That's what the text says. Do I tell them I'm fasting? Do I, do I break fast? What do I do, Pastor? No, 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 listen. You tell them, hey, I'm not going to eat. I'm fasting to the Lord. That's what you do. This isn't a, this isn't a, a gag order. I'm telling your, right, your act of righteousness in front of, in to, to other people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't let the motives behind those actions be so that you can be seen. Actually, as a matter of fact, you look at verse 1 of chapter 6 in Matthew's Gospel. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What he is not saying is, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. As a matter of fact, that would make no sense. Rather, Jesus is saying, don't let the motivation of your heart be driven by the desire to be seen as righteous. You see, verse 1 is the kickoff to the whole section. You see, uh, we, friends, we are to practice righteousness before other people. Worship is always a matter of public and private. But we should beware of doing so, so that we may be seen by others. You see this woman in Mark's Gospel in chapter 14 is worshiping in public. There's no way around it. It's there in the middle of the story. Therefore, you and I should worship in public. We should worship in public to the glory of God. But notice, worship happens in public, but especially in the context of community. Look again at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask, of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it on her head. Listen, there's this idea, this crazy, toxic, life-killing aspect of our American Christianity that we think we can all be Rambo Christians. It's not true. Matter of fact, the, the fastest way to shipwreck your faith is to think you can do it by yourself. Look at this woman. She goes to Jesus. But where is Jesus? You see, Jesus is surrounded by his disciples and others. Don't miss this. We think we can do Christianity by ourselves, but time and time again we are proven that we cannot. 
more so we are shown that we were never meant to. You see, Paul in Galatians, we looked at the end of Galatians chapter 5, he's talking to the church about continuing in the Spirit after the point of salvation, after they trust in Christ's righteousness. And at the end of chapter 5, he's talking about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, and working on the fruits of the Spirit. And then he continues his thought into chapter 6 with these words, the brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a, gentle, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, in Paul's mind, he's not separating the work Christ is doing in your heart from the work that he's doing in the hearts of those around you. Always in aspects of community. There is no such thing as the Rambo Christian. As a matter of fact, James, in his letter, after talking about faith being shown by his works, he closes his entire letter with this thought. My brothers, if anyone is among you uh, who wanders from the truth and someone brings him back in, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, we have plenty of Christians who are wandering in death and darkness because they are not in community. Our faith will always show itself by worshiping with one another. We try to separate this uh, understanding of, well, you can be a Christian and stay home in your PJs. Never actually love one another. Never actually uh, disciple one another. Never actually bear one another's burdens. And I'm saying I don't see that in any of Scripture. No man is an island. Like, we understand this in our guts, don't we? Like, like we get it. Like, who here among us says, like, nah, I want to be by myself all times. Always. Always by myself. But you see, the longing of our heart, because we're made in God's image, is always to long for one another. God himself exists in community. And the world is designed in God's image. Therefore, you and I are to be plugged into community. That's why the authors of Hebrews would say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since... We have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with the true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sparkled, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. He's not saying just hold fast, Christian. He says, no, no, no. Let us, all of us in here together, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful and let us consider, let us think on, let us meditate on, let us stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we worship in public and especially in the context of community. The elders, the deacons and I have been wrestling with this uh, for, um, for the last couple times with me. We've been talking about understanding like how do we do community here at this church? And the answer is pretty poorly, pretty poorly if we're being honest, just uh, evaluating the situation, boots on the ground. Uh, we meet together once a week here on Sunday morning, don't we? But then throughout the week, how often are we meeting together? It's very rare. Our spiritual growth is currently being stifled because we are not in each other's faces and in each other's lives the way that God actually intends us to be. 
And a part of me, as I look at our church landscape and look, understand the direction and the growth and maturity of our churches, part of me thinks that maybe, maybe we as leadership, as the spiritual oversight of the church, are actually enabling this. So like right now, for example, uh, there, there are some folks in bed watching this sermon or maybe just sitting on their couch watching this sermon via live stream. And part of me wonders, have we enabled some of this? Have we separated the actual understanding and sitting under the scriptures from being in community with one another by creating avenues for folks to actually be able to do that? I'm not saying the live stream in and of itself is bad. What I'm saying it's practically working itself out to actually stunt our mature growth. And with that, uh, the elders, uh, the deacons and I have come to the decision that we, after this week there will no longer be a live stream. Uh, of, of this in live in real time. Now, we'll, we'll post the recorded sermons online as a help to people to, to chew on and meditate throughout the week. But as we think about where we're currently at in the spiritual growth of our church, we think that it's right now for us, it's just not a good thing. It's actually stunting our growth. So we don't want to enable that. We actually want to push people and pull people like, come, be a part of the community. Number two, I told you I have five points. Point number two. Worship will be mocked by some, but defended by Christ. Look at verse 4. And while he was at Bethany in the house, oh, that's verse 3, look at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Christian, understand that your worship to your Savior will be mocked. You will be told to sit down and be quiet. You will be told you can't bring your Jesus in here. You will be told we don't believe in your God or your Jesus or your Bible, so leave that at home. And your response, Christian, if you're faithful to the text, will be to keep on going. Your worshipful obedience to the scriptures will make other people indignant. Notice the text. This is not just limited to unbelievers, though. Notice Mark says... There were some, there were some among them. Who all is at this dinner party? Unbelievers for sure. Jesus is there. Simon, it's his house. He's probably there. More importantly, you have his disciples are here. And Mark is clear throughout the writing of his gospel letter that the disciples just don't understand. They just don't seem to get it. Immediately in chapter 8, after, G, after Peter says, you are the Christ, uh, he, he immediately says, uh, he tries to tell Jesus he's wrong about something. Like they just, these guys over and over and over again just don't seem to get it. But other, po- other folks in Mark's gospel get it, and that's why, that's why that's what Mark's doing. He's trying to show us who is Jesus. So understand, it's not just unbelievers telling this woman to sit down and to stop it. But it's some of those who actually would claim the name of Christ, and some of those who are actual Christians. Some are saying, stop that. Now, I wonder, in the context of your life and your faith in Christ, and we're just got done talking about worship and community, how often have you been amongst other uh, believers in Christ and wanted in your heart to talk about the deep things of God and how Christ is actually working and changing in your life and you were shut down? Where other Christians were very quickly changed the subject because they become uncomfortable with your worship of your Savior. God help us, it's like in some way we're embarrassed to actually talk about the work of the Spirit in our lives. But notice their mockery escalates. It goes from talking amongst themselves to scolding her. 
at the end of verse 5, they are scolding her to her face. It's no longer behind closed doors. It's out in public. It's to her face. Stop that. They said to her, you see, your worship of your Savior will be mocked by some, but it will always, it will always be defended by Christ. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, this is beautiful. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This is a verse that I've been sitting on and chewing all, all week long. But Jesus said, got ridiculed for your faith at work today. But Jesus said, well, my dear friends, you will be mocked. You will be ridiculed. You will be talked about behind your back and to your face. But let me remind you this morning, Jesus will always defend you. He will always defend you. This is the same Jesus who stands up for Stephen in Acts chapter 7 as they're murdering him. Stephen looks up into the heaven by the Holy Spirit. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Only time we see Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father. Every other time he's sitting, he's standing for Stephen. He's standing up for this woman too. This is the Jesus who suffered and endured the cross. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he endure the cross? He endured it for the joy set before him. This is the Jesus who stands up for you when you're being mocked, when you're being ridiculed. This is the same Jesus who, when they're talking behind, about you behind your back, you can walk assuredly in the comfort of your Savior because he stands up for you. But Jesus said, you see, your worship will be mocked, but it will always be defended by Christ. Number three, very quickly, worship will be costly. Worship will be costly. Look at, uh, you, see, you see this throughout this text a couple times. Look at verse 3. Uh, a woman came with alabaster flask, appointment of pure nard. Uh, and Mark here is laying the groundwork. He says, it's very costly. And she broke the flask. You ever thought about that? She breaks the flask. Like, why did she do that? You ever think about that? Like the oil had to get into the flask somehow, which means it had an opening, it had a container. Like, why didn't she just pop the lid off? And she just breaks it. You ever wonder why? It's because she was burning the ship. She didn't want to go back. She didn't want to be able to just pour out a little bit. She wanted to pour out all of it. It's very costly. And as a matter of fact, you say, well, how, how costly is it? Look at verse 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And given to the poor, and they scolded her. 300 denarii. A denarii was about what someone would make in an average day's work. So she could have sold this for more than 300 days' worth of labors. Uh, so uh, annualize that for me. Put it in uh, the today's money, Pastor. How much are we talking here? Probably about $70,000. $70,000. the median uh, annual average household, uh, what we make today. So about $70,000 in today's money. And she pours it out on Jesus and a great love of worship for her Savior. Worship will always be costly, friends. And point number four, worship will flow from understanding who Jesus is. Worship will flow from understanding who Jesus is. Look at verse seven. He corrects their thinking here. They had this argument like, well, we could have gave $70,000 to the poor pastor. Jesus corrects their understanding. They don't understand what's actually before them. He says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I forget who said it. Somebody famous said, The heart cannot love what the mind does not understand. Worship will always flow from understanding who Jesus really is. Jesus, uh, Jesus expands on what's actually happening here, right? In verse six, 8, he says that she's anointing my body beforehand for burial. I kind of wrestled with this as we be like, did she know she was doing that? I don't think so. But she did recognize one thing. She realized how much it was worth. And she realized that Jesus by far exceeded her little annual wages. Far exceeded. She understood who was before her and how much he was worth. So part of thinking through this text and understanding where we're at as a church and understanding, uh, I want to, uh, some of you come to Sunday morning, uh, the Calvary Foundation that we have from 945, 1045 every uh, Sunday. Uh, we're going to take a, a seasonal break and then relaunch it in the uh, spring with uh, our focus being on the attributes of God. The attributes of God. There's a book out in the Resource Center. I encourage uh, some of you to take it home today, start reading, start prepping your mind for it. But if when I say the attributes of God, you're like, oh my gosh, this is boring. Listen, this woman was able to lay down an annual year's salary an average annual salary. She was able to to dump it out because she understood who it was that was before her. Worship flows from understanding who our king really is. Number five, we're almost there, hold on. Worship will always lead to mission. Worship will always lead to mission. Look at verse nine. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus now assumes that this story is actually going to be continued. This is beautiful, by the way. Jesus actually is like, yeah, wherever they're going to talk about me in the future, because they will, they're going to talk about her. It'll be told in memory of her. Her worship this evening, gentlemen, will be told in memory of her because she understands what's before her. Part of me wrestled this week. Why would this story out of all the other stories be told? What's so special about this story that Jesus then ties it to an understanding of the actual gospel? It's because she she rightly understood who it was that was before her. And Jesus just says in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, there's this expectation that once you have right understanding of who Jesus truly is, that you won't be able to not tell anyone else about him. Like, you'll, you'll be driven to actually open your mouth and share your faith. You see, the Christian life is consumed with knowing Jesus and making him known. The Christian life is consumed with knowing Jesus and making him known. It isn't just one or the other, friends. If we focus all of our time and all of our attention on simply knowing who Jesus is, but we never actually open our mouth and share it with others around us, then we show that we have missed a vital aspect of our faith. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if we have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if we have all the faith in the world, so we could actually move the mountain ranges, but we do not have love, so we are nothing. We can be intellectual giants in our understanding of theology and in understanding the attributes of God, but if we never have an unbeliever over to our house for dinner, brothers and sisters, then are we truly loving our neighbors? 
On the other hand, we can know nothing of the deep things of God and constantly be telling people about the forgiveness and love of a Savior that we don't truly understand. We have a truncated gospel. We'll be able to tell people about the forgiveness of sins and then be unable to tell them what to actually do with it. The church is, uh, is struggling with that right now. Lots of forgiveness, no actual discipleship. We'll have a gospel that is a mile wide and only an inch deep. We will see the world in only black and white instead of being able to see it in full HD, 3D color. Worship leads to mission, which means we need both understanding who Christ is and then actually walking it out. We need to understand the gospel and all its beautiful implications, and we need to proclaim it and share it with those around us. But notice how our story ends this morning. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, the story begins with the ones who should have been preparing for the Passover, looking for a way to kill Jesus. And now it ends with one who should have been transformed through the teaching and love of Christ, now looking for a way to betray that Christ. Mark wants us to see a contrasting uh, difference between these viewpoints of how much Jesus is truly worth. What drives a person to give a whole year's salary and pour it out in worship of Christ? The answer is because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. What drives you to endure persecution and all kinds of ridiculous accusations hurled against you because Christ is worth it. It's because he's worth it. The man took that uh, Navajo blanket shortly thereafter of get, getting a praise for upwards of $500,000, and you know what he did with it? He sold it, as you would, as you would. He realized what he had at that point. No one had ever told him that that Navajo blanket on the old dusty couch was actually worth a fortune. He just lived in his house for generations and no one actually knew what it was worth. But when he realized what it was worth, he put his money into action. Uh, you can go, you can find, you can find the skit online, or the, the little clip online. It's beautiful. Again, just crying tears when he realizes what he has and what it's worth. Listen, I'm here to tell you that Christ is more beautiful and more valuable than anything else in your life. Maybe no one's ever told you that. Maybe the only version of Christ you've heard is just simply come to Jesus and that's all you know how to do. You don't actually know how to walk out your face. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is worth it. And he's here to help you more than just forgiveness. He wants to help you walk what it means to walk as a Christian in all facets of your life. Maybe you didn't realize the worth that you actually have living inside you of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can put to death all the deeds of your flesh. Like you don't have to be enslaved to your own sin anymore, church. By the Spirit, put the deeds, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Listen, worship is always going to be costly. There is no such thing as cheap grace. We're all called to serve. We're all called to, to walk out this gospel. Listen, this should get rid of any kind of distinction in your mind between I'm a Christian on Sunday, but not on Monday. I'm a Christian at church, but not at the dinner table. There is no, like, it, when Christ creates a 
a new spirit within you, when he puts a new heart within you, it says he literally creates a new man, a new woman inside of you. He's making all things new, fam. This is beautiful, this is glorious, and this is true. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would see how much of your value that you've given us. We would rightly understand the worth that we have in the scriptures and in the spirit which resides in our hearts that we would not think of our Christianity as cheap. Father, I pray you would work in our hearts. We would share one another. We would bear one another's burdens. That we couldn't stand but just talk about the goodness of God to all who would listen to us. Father, I pray we would we would remember the story of this woman who loved you above ridicule, above the cost, loved you in public and in community, Father. She's seen the value and the worth that she had before us. May we see it too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just before Philip comes and gives the, the benediction and we, we get up out of here and go to lunch, uh, wanna, uh, the, 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 we've been uh, made aware that there's a great need in the church right now. Uh, financial need. Uh, so with that, I want to I want to prepare you uh, that in two weeks on December fourth, we'll be taking a special love offering. We haven't once passed a plate since I've been pastor here, um, not once. I think that's okay. I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with that. But uh, in two weeks, we'll be passing the plates physically, um, and so uh, and we're gonna we're just gonna take this money and give it to this very very uh, very present and real need in the life of. Uh, of one of, one of God's sheep. So uh, we love this person. We want to pour out our love to this person, uh, to this family. Uh, so in two weeks, December 4, we'll be taking up a special uh, love offering for them. Uh, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to take your tithe check and just uh, script, you know, scratch out tithe and just put love offering. That would be, uh, would be uh, un- uh, not understanding what we're actually doing here. Uh, this would be over and above your normal giving to the Lord. We're asking you to uh, to, to, to help out this family. Um, so with that, Brother Phil, would you come uh, close us up? I love you all.